Welcome to Small World Big Problems, a podcast from the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. My name is Dylan Yachishin, and today my guest is Dr. Isaac Cardin on China's Maritime Grand Strategy. In the 21st century, China has embarked on an unprecedented military buildup, especially in the naval realm. This begs the question, how is China thinking about its maritime grand strategy, and how is China applying this grand strategy to international law? Also, is China looking for an international network of naval bases, and how is it leveraging its commercial interests to do so? Today, we will be discussing this with Dr. Isaac Cardin, who has written extensively on this subject. Dr. Cardin is an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins SAIS and is also a senior fellow for China Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He was formerly an assistant professor at the U.S. Naval War College, where he was also a research faculty member in the China Maritime Studies Institute. His research focuses on China's maritime power, specifically Chinese maritime disputes and international law of the sea, and also China's presence in international ports. Dr. Cardin just finished his new book, China's Law of the Sea, the New Rules of the Maritime Order, with Yale University Press, which analyzes whether and how China is making the rules of the regional and global order. Dr. Cardin, thank you very much for joining us at Small World Big Problems, and it's a pleasure to have you today. My pleasure, Dylan. Happy to be here. Just to start by diving into it. Can you give us an overview of how China is thinking about its maritime strategy in 2023 and then how this fits into China's view of itself as a great power or its role in the world? Sure. I think we can say with a lot of confidence that Chinese leaders are thinking quite a lot about maritime strategy in 2023. And Xi Jinping himself has reminded the party leadership to be attentive to maritime affairs, having for a long time been over-focused in his estimate and that of a lot of Chinese strategists on continental terrestrial security affairs. And so this idea of China as a maritime power has been enshrined as a central party goal only since 2012, sort of in the handoff over to Xi Jinping. And I think over that period, over a decade now, we've seen it rise in prominence as a sort of central axis of a lot of China's development in terms of comprehensive national power. So I guess that would be the, the main thing I'd like to say in terms of an overview of how China's thinking about its maritime strategy. I'd say, it's, I'd say they think of it in a comprehensive or a holistic way as a part or a component of a broader set of objectives that the party has helpfully collated for us in various authoritative reports, like in particular the National Party Congress reports, but in five-year plans, et cetera. And what you can see is that it is a maritime, not a naval strategy that is of central interest and of most consequence for Chinese leadership. And that means that it's about building up the capability as well as the capacity, just the scale for China to control some of its own destiny in the maritime domain might be a way to think about it. And so when I think about where this maritime strategy fits into China's view of itself as a great power, as you've asked, it has to do with a type of self-sufficiency 
or autonomy or, or ability to self-help in the language of international relations realists through its maritime power, uh, which again, back to this idea that it's not only or even particularly about naval power, which is important to it, but rather about this comprehensive sense of maritime power in here. And we'll talk about this later, so I won't get into it too much here. We're thinking very much about things like shipbuilding and their merchant fleet and port investments and other transport infrastructure and logistics and everything associated with that. And I think that really is the nature of China's thinking about maritime strategy now. It's, it is comprehensive and the naval element is nested into that. And the big construct under which I'd say this is all nested as far as overseas or international maritime strategy, which I take to be the thrust of this, is that all of these activities are in service of an idea of protecting China's overseas interests. This is the public framing that the central leadership wants to put on this. And I think, frankly, we can afford to take them at their word that that's it, because even though that's a defensive intent, what it entails is quite a lot of new capability that China needs to achieve in the maritime domain to protect these interests because of its economic scale because of just how deeply Chinese interests are embedded across the world in places like Europe and the Middle East and Africa and Latin America and the United States for that matter, that there's this concomitant need for a naval and a military capability that's going to support it. And that contains this kernel of something really important about China's maritime strategy, this holistic idea that the maritime strategy is supposed to serve the broader national interest and set of goals, and that it requires this comprehensive set of capabilities and capacities, naval power, but also and particularly commercial maritime power. And I think that's really kind of high, high level cut at it. And we can get into some of the details of it as we move forward. Yeah, and we'll, we'll certainly dive into some of the international law components and the international commercial maritime components a little later onto the podcast. Uh, but first, on your point of China looking to defend its overseas interests with new capabilities, when Chinese strategists or planners or media talks about these overseas interests, they usually refer to these interests as far seas or uh, far seas defense. And that's opposed to China's near seas. Could you talk a little bit to the difference between China's conception of its near and far seas and what that means for its strategy? Sure. And yeah, this is a, this is a nice uh, jumping off point to kind of bifurcate a little bit. And you're right, there is a conceptual line, I think more so than a, than a physical geographic line between this idea of near seas and far seas. And it's roughly approximated by this first island chain, which you're probably familiar with, but worth specifying as the islands that ring the East Asian landmass and effectively, and we'll get into this in the law of the sea section, but it effectively enclose the mainland China behind a ring of, in many cases, US allied countries. And the waters within that are the Yellow Sea, East China Sea, the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea, you could consider this kind of one continuous body of water that's more or less the near seas. And in this area, China has a very particular set 
of interests that really make for quite a different repertoire of actions and a level of threat perception on China's part. And what's going on in these near seas is that China has sovereignty claims over islands and then associated maritime jurisdictional claims. And I'll hold off on all the details on that until we talk a little bit about the law of the sea. But what this entails is a much more what they describe as active defense posture. These are places where China is acting as though they are under its control and that they are its sovereign territory that's part of its core inviolable interests. That's quite different from the way that they think about their maritime rights and interests in the area that we can call the Far Seas, Yuanhai, which are, again, it's a little bit of a conceptual difference. But what we do know is that in those Far Seas, the mission set does not entail this high-end potential combat focus when you think about the Navy, certainly, but from a from the national standpoint, this high-end core interest focus on defending sovereign territory. And what you see, again, are those overseas interests. And those, to me, are the ones that are really most notable in terms of the broader discussion of kind of grand maritime strategy. That tends to be what we're thinking of. I, I appreciate this chance to really dwell on the linkages between these, because in a lot of ways, those are really secondary and tertiary goals compared to those first order goals in the near seas. The unrealized sovereignty over Taiwan is, of course, the most powerful of the distortions that we see here in the near seas in terms of how focused China is on those sovereignty issues as opposed to these other potential strategic goals. Those other strategic goals in the Far Seas, I would say, are predominantly focused on economic access. And so in that sense, there's an interesting linkage here, which is about connecting the Near Seas to the Far Seas. It's this area where China does have control and essentially is able to create a defensive perimeter. Whereas as you look out into the distant oceans, whether it's this initial foray into international counter-piracy that China took in the Gulf of Aden, that they may be considering reinitiating in the current circumstances with Chinese flagged ships also coming under attack again in that same area in the Red Sea. Those are missions that are determined not by China trying to fight for its sovereignty, but rather this idea that they need to protect their sea lines of communication and particularly their access to flows of energy and other key commodity inputs for their economy. And I think those are the connections that stand out to me. It's this idea that somehow China needs to utilize and leverage its maritime power, and in particular its commercial maritime power, to secure those lines of communication, to secure the connection between the near seas where they can genuinely have control to some extent, or are seeking control to some extent, and these distant theaters where under any reasonable set of assumptions, China is not on a pathway to being the dominant military power in places like the Middle East or Europe or in the Western Hemisphere. And therefore, the goals strategically that they're trying to achieve are somewhat different and narrower, I would say. It's not to say that they're necessarily more modest than some alternatives. It could be that they want to project high-end combat power at some point in the future on the basis of protecting those overseas interests. Stranger things have happened. I don't think it's the intent of Chinese leadership in pursuing these. And yet you do see this tendency of the more extended 
you get and the more you're capable of projecting power, the more likely you are to employ that, to use that. And we've seen examples of that as well. And so I think for now, I don't see that particular element in China's Farsis. You do see a Farsis protection mission, which I'd interpret to comprise things like convoys and some of the types of operations that we might see in the Red Sea in the current moment here in December, 2023, depending on when you listen to this. So why don't I break on that for now and we can pick up any element of that suits you later, Dylan. Yeah. And a quick jumping off point from that, uh, you were describing the tantamount or the core interest of eventual Chinese sovereignty over Taiwan and how the interests in the near seas are much more tangible than maybe China's thinking about the far seas. And maybe this is a little more speculative, but could that imply there's some sort of consecutive order to which China would want to consolidate power in its near seas before truly investing in far seas power? Or will China always invest or increase its far seas power projection regardless of how the geopolitical situation turns out in its near seas? That's a good question. I think the near seas are going to be determinative in a lot of ways. And I think it is also worth noting that we already, if we look at the naval side of things, we do already see what I would argue is sort of the moving geographic boundary of this conceptual category of near seas. From the Navy, PLA Navy standpoint, places like the Philippine Sea and parts of the Western Pacific outside the first island chain are really becoming much more part of the potential battle space there. And I think are, from an operational standpoint, starting to resemble more like near seas. So in that sense, I'd back to the last question, I think you inevitably see as capability grows a creep out of the level of ambition. And I don't think it would be wise for us not to sort of price into this far sea strategy, this idea that as China's blue water capability increases, as its exposure to risks overseas increases, which is inevitable as its economic footprint grows, that they're going to feel like there's going to be a growth industry, I guess, in terms of the increasing intensity and sophistication and scale of PLA operations overseas. What that moves towards as far as strategic objectives, I think is highly, highly contingent on not just events in the near seas, but I'd say the overall global situation. Under steady state assumptions right now, let's project linearly from the conflict that we are watching unfold in the Middle East now and the posture that China's taken. It's very difficult to imagine China looking at, even, even with great risk to its personnel or flows of oil and gas and other commodities. I think I'll make a prediction and put my money where my mouth is. It's kind of an easy one. I don't think PLA or PLA Navy is going to be involved in any direct way other than perhaps convoying Chinese flagged. And I think that that kind of narrow scope is likely to be sustained unless and until there's some major, even more significant disruption than we're witnessing now. And I think we are at the precipice maybe of some changes that would necessitate a much more active posture, you know, maybe not not extending active defense from the near seas into the far seas so much as demanding continued revision and kind of moving of the goalposts in the sense of what exactly the purpose of this overseas posture is. It is 
the nature of a lot of the platforms that China has invested in over many decades and is now starting to deploy, that they will demand that type of thinking about what's the broader geographic theater in which they operate. You think about carrier air, unless China deploys it in a very, very simple and non-combined or even joint way, the point of carrier air is to project air power over vast distances. And you imagine that that becomes more attractive as that capability gets developed. And I think they're working diligently every day to develop that capability. And so at some point that becomes tempting. Similarly, to have a genuine submarine part of the triad is going to inevitably lead to global submarine operations in a way that we don't see from Chinese nuclear submarines at the present time. Uh, but that they're specifically working towards. And, and and finally, I'd add, and this is not the only capability, but I think it's worth thinking about things that knit these together. The whole next generation of Chinese surface warfare vessels, things like the Type 055 Renhai, uh, we class it as a cruiser in the United States, a cruiser or a destroyer. These are blue water platforms. Their purpose is to project power at long distances, to do air defense at long distances for carrier groups, for example. For a variety of reasons, the capabilities don't determine the strategy. And again, I, I would say I don't think we expect to see all those many sophisticated missiles and VLS cells on the deck of that Renai to be used as for land attack missions in the Middle East at any point in our straight line projection from where we are now. And yet, you also see the inevitable creep towards deploying and using these high-end capabilities that China's invested in over time. And in particular, and that's the last thing I'll say on this, in particular from some of the economic platforms that they've built up over this period of time. Inevitably, in the absence of having dedicated military platforms, if you feel that security risk distant from you know your areas of operation, you'll have to use the facilities that you have on hand. And that's what we've seen. And we'll get into this a little bit more, I suppose, of Chinese forces operating overseas and seeking integration to some degree with the commercial sector and in particular Chinese enterprises that own and operate infrastructure assets abroad. Speaking of a potentially changing Chinese role or a a shifting perspective, in your wonderful and very comprehensive new book, China's Law of the Sea, you discuss China's approaches to four different rule sets under the Law of the Sea, geography, resources, navigation, and dispute resolution, if we were to put these into categories. How do these Chinese attempts to shift the Law of the Sea fit into its overarching strategy? Great. Well, thank you so much for taking a look at the book. And I will leave it to you to endorse it to your colleagues and classmates. It's not a light read, and you flagged a couple of the substantive issues that I try to get into in it. But what I would say is that China's views on the law of the sea are very much a part of this, a nested piece of this overall maritime strategy. The law is one of those ways that China envisions as sort of creating enabling conditions for it to achieve some of these strategic objectives and also being a challenge in that regard. You know, we've seen China move from 
an earlier phase in the People's Republic's history of much higher levels of what we'd consider radical political views on things like international law under Mao, particularly in the more radical periods under Mao. The idea that international law could be a part of China's strategy was uh, anathema for a strict Marxist-Leninist adhering to Mao Zedong thought the law is purely bourgeois kind of trick played on on the working classes and at the level of international politics. It's a way that the hegemonic states subjugate and subordinate weaker states. And so built into some of China's orientation on things like the law of the sea, there's this original ideological animus. And that's given way now to what I would consider to be a much more pragmatic stance. I would also argue that that pragmatism coexisted with the radicalism of the time. And it's one of the reasons that China, even though it was kind of railing from the outside of this treaty regime for the first 20 odd years of its existence as a state until joining the United Nations in 71, 22 years after becoming a state, there's a bit of a of a mixed picture here as, as to whether or not any rule sets are legitimate. For now, I think it's safe to say that China has made, as I said up front, has made international law into one of several fronts that it views as being part of a struggle to achieve some of its broader national objectives, many of which are served by its maritime power and maritime developments. And so the rule sets in particular capture some of the core issues and sort of core enabling factors that would give China the the autonomy to control and operate in its near seas in some of the ways that we described before. So when we think about geographic rules here, I'm primarily talking about what you'd recognize as boundaries, the establishment of clear demarcations between where your authority and and, in law of the sea terms, your jurisdiction and your sovereign rights, where they end and mine begin from China's standpoint. And things like the famous nine dash line, things like the effort to draw straight baselines around archipelagos out in distant ocean waters and to extend continental shelves according to natural prolongation. There's a variety of different pieces of this that come together and basically paint a picture where China has a not altogether uniform view of how exactly its geographic boundaries are supposed to be delimited, but it's one that basically subordinates the geographic rights and interests or the maritime rights and interests of those of other states take sort of a maximal posture. We see something similar going on in resources. These are also probably easily recognizable as some of the concrete issues at stake when you have maritime disputes. Um, It bears noting here that those sovereignty disputes that I mentioned, those near sea sovereignty claims, starting with Taiwan, but including the South China Sea, Spratly Islands, Paracel Islands, as well as in the East China Sea, the Diaoyu Islands, all of those are sovereignty disputes in some cases involving many parties, and all of them give rise to very large maritime disputes, which is substantially what the book in question is about. And the resource claims within those are some of the areas where we really see China expressing what I've called China's law of the sea, its particular vision of the norms and rules and standards and patterns of behavior that are legitimate or that are acceptable or that it wants to persist into the future in this region. And one thing we can say for sure about resources is that China has 
prevented the exploitation of a very large proportion of particularly the oil and gas resources, maybe less so the fisheries in the region, by claiming more than it can actually control. And that's an interesting dynamic, and it's one that's changing, but ultimately it is effectively denying anybody the possibility of exploiting oil and gas and other mineral resources, and to some extent fisheries resources, by maintaining these maximal geographic claims. We move on to navigation as the third set, and these are the only rule sets where we really see the United States and China in direct opposition, at least as far as their specific interests and their actions are concerned. And here what we see are these very publicized episodes in which China is saying to a U.S. Navy destroyer and publicizing this idea that it expelled it from its territorial sea because it was violating international law and Chinese domestic law and some historical propriety. Usually there's a kind of litany of things that they're distressed about here. And what we're talking about in that rule set is basically this idea that China claims a much broader set of rights and jurisdictions to regulate what the U.S. would consider the free navigation of vessels and aircraft and subsea craft around the global commons. There's a whole argument about what the right terminology would be. Global commons may well be relegated to just the very distant waters beyond national jurisdiction. But what we have in this new zone of the exclusive economic zone, which has only really formally been in existence since 1994, is an area of high seas freedoms that the United States is quite enthusiastic about supporting and upholding and utilizing. And then we have, on the other hand, this idea that coastal states have jurisdiction over the exclusive economic zone. And here's where China puts into practice a very closed version of navigation, basically saying it's up to us to decide what the rules are for navigation, especially military navigation in any area under which we claim jurisdiction. So this is doubly problematic when you compound it with those earlier rules. They're claiming jurisdiction over a much broader geography than the rest of the region is willing to accept and saying some significant portion of that is off limits from a navigational standpoint in sort of direct contravention of the way that the U.S. and arguably most countries interpret those rules. The last one I made leave aside and not cover too much this idea of dispute resolution because it's not strictly maritime. It's sort of a functional question about how do you resolve differences between, say, the United States and China about what the rules are in exclusive economic zones. What I will say there is that, and connecting this to our discussion, because I think that's a that's a really kind of in the weeds international law discussion about standing and admissibility and jurisdiction that may leave aside. But the thought that I have coming to it is that it really connects this idea that the near seas are something very specific and special and different from China's strategic standpoint. And what they've done in the case of anything involving maritime rights and interests to include territorial sovereignty in the near seas is excluded any type of dispute resolution. The Philippines arbitration brought in 2013 is the clearest example of this, but we see it as a as sort of an across-the-board position that Chinese diplomats and international lawyers and senior officials have taken, which is bilateral political dialogue and consultation is the only available mechanism for resolving disputes of that nature on the basis of mutual respect and all the five principles of, of peaceful coexistence that are so intrinsic to Chinese foreign policy. The idea of a third party institutionalized international law-based mechanism, particularly one composed of a bunch of 
international judges, white guys in powdered wigs or something like that in The Hague. These are all the things that China in its more radical mode of thinking about this basically rejects outright. And that's a near seas phenomenon. Basically, they're saying you can have reasonable dispute resolution rules for other people's maritime disputes or for maritime disputes that are going on elsewhere in the world on anything whatsoever. But if it impinges on our sovereignty, if it can be construed to impinge on our sovereignty, would be my gloss on it, because I think there's a long walk from maritime entitlements to their sovereignty. But what China has done is effectively excluded altogether from legal process. Uh, And that, I think, is all of a piece with exercising a near sovereignty level of control over near seas spaces. And I think that's the most extreme version of it that I've articulated now. But I think putting these together, it's like how much jurisdiction, how much control, how much authority is China going to be able to achieve in those near sea spaces has a major effect on how secure it feels and how it's likely to behave in the international kind of the broader far seas theaters without question. And I think a better understanding of China's approach, especially to these different types of rule sets, really emphasizes how, back to your point about China's comprehensive maritime strategy, how although we may see that China's projecting power with its navy, it's using multifaceted means and ways to accomplish its overarching ends, not just the military aspect. And on that note about different ways and maybe non-traditional ways of projecting power. You've done very pioneering work on China's influence or Chinese state-owned enterprises' influence in international ports worldwide. In your peer competitor piece in international security, you highlight that Chinese state-owned enterprises control or have some influence in at least 96 ports worldwide. Could this be viewed as a, a surreptitious power projection network of potential naval bases or how should we consider this in this Chinese influence in international ports? Sure. Well, th- thanks for the kind words about the research. And my co-author, Wendy Leutert, and I are very glad to have brought what appears to be a well-received analytical approach to what people have been recognizing for a long time as a really unique facet of China's overseas economic development. The idea that it in particular, built and owned and operated all these major ocean ports as the sort of the crown jewels of this broader infrastructure push that in its more recent incarnations has been called the Belt and Road or all versions of the Belt and Road, but ultimately has been sort of a long-term interest of Chinese enterprises to help build China's broader economic network to support its fundamental national objectives. China has had a trade-dependent growth model for a long time, and the transportation and conveyance and logistics and all the related services of that trade has sort of inevitably, almost as like an emergent property of this way of conducting uh, economic development, it's become a really high priority for China. And so what we see now, after, say, 25 years of quite concerted investment in developing overseas infrastructure, particularly ports, is that there's a network through which Chinese power is projected, is the way that we characterized it in that peer competitor article. And we were shocked that that pun hadn't been claimed already, but there it was. And it captures the argument that we're trying to make, which is that these peers, P-I-E-R, which I guess can't see the article if you're listening on the podcast, so sorry for assuming the pun was funny. It may or may not be, but it also, it's descriptive because 
what we see is at the pier, a type of competitive edge that China has developed over time because it enables, among other things, the global mobility of its naval forces. That's what we ended up focusing in on as the real empirical focus of the piece. And I guess I'll say as, a, as an aside here to students listening to the podcast, that having that kind of narrow scope condition, having that question about not everything about ports, but rather their specific utilization by the PLA, and then offering some reasons why observing that tells us something more broadly about ports and China's strategy was pretty successful there. And what we did was observe an increasing intensity of PLA Navy use of these now about 95 ports at which Chinese firms own and operate terminals, uh, which is sort of the unit that you should focus on here. It's not the whole port so much as an individual terminal, these sort of self-contained units that are able to unload and offload cargo and convey it onto its next destination and, and incidentally collect a lot of information that has military intelligence value as well in the process. So basically, just to kind of put a put a bow on this, maybe we can talk more specifically in the last couple of minutes about some of the uses. What we've seen is that these ports are, are a reasonable second best substitute for a network of bases for the Navy, and in particular for the PLA Navy, and in particular because, at least for now, as we discussed earlier, the mission set, the range of strategic objectives towards which the PLA has been employed is such that these lesser uses of commercial facilities, things like supporting refueling, resupplying, intelligence collection, some limited repairs and maintenance for the ship, that's sufficient to, say, conduct a far seas protection mission like a convoy, not to reload their magazine and go out and continue fighting a major combat operation, but rather to sustain a significant footprint and operational presence to have PLA Navy on station in a place like the Bab al-Mandeb tracking what's going on in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden right now. That's the sort of thing that I think these ports are now beginning to help us see the ways in which they do serve some element of China's maritime strategy. And one of the things you've written on when discussing these ports, whether it be a port that is already operational or a base that is already operational like Djibouti or a port in which China has invested heavily like Guadar is China's idea of a strategic strong point or the PLA uh, idea of a strategic strong point. I guess, could we wrap it up by you discussing this idea a little bit more and what makes these strategic strong points so strategic? Yeah. So that terminology comes from a range of Chinese discussions that we were tracking a couple of years ago at the Naval War College, China Maritime Studies Institute in Newport, Rhode Island, where I was before coming to Carnegie. And my colleague, Connor Kennedy, should be credited as the real discoverer of the strategic strong point concept. And it really addressed, again, to me, in an elegant way, a conceptual problem that had been confounding people, which is the, this whole string of pearls debate or the idea of surreptitious development of a, a network of naval bases. And what the strategic strong point concept, I think, helps us do analytically is, is break it out of that binary. It's not that we should be looking at every port as though it has some probability of becoming the next Djibouti, which is worth noting is the only 
formal PLA base overseas at Djibouti. It's rather, what is the utility of this strategic strong point right now? And what can be done based on its characteristics, based on the politics of the country, based on its geography, based on China's relationship with that country? This is how this strategic strong point works. And it again, it's a comprehensive or holistic way of thinking about China's overseas strategy. It's this idea that there need to be places that support a range of Chinese interests and allow them to establish a foothold or a platform for some type of power projection. As I said, this whole article is about reconceptualizing what we mean by power projection. It's not just launching missiles against targets in the region. There's a range of different ways that military power is expressed to include through the pure symbolism of the showing the flag, which I wouldn't discount as a piece of this. So starting with that, let's break down that false binary of like, it's either a purely commercial enterprise or it's surreptitiously on its way to becoming a military base. The reality that the strategic strong point concept captures is that it is a spectrum in between them. And what China is doing is trying to wring out of this network all the utility that it can get. And so in some places, as you mentioned, Gwadar, Pakistan, you could consider the upside to be much higher. The relationship with Pakistan that China has sustained, the location of that port right at the exit to the Straits of Hormuz, where so much Chinese interest is concentrated, the various ways in which China is just unquestionably in control of the development of that project, make that almost uniquely a very attractive place for military use. And yet it's always weighed against this calculation of, well, yes, we get this benefit potentially from using it, but what are the various costs? And at least to date, the costs arrayed against it have to include prominently this idea that India is a hugely important player in global politics, but especially, especially in the Indian Ocean region. And it's beyond my expertise to say exactly how the Indian national security reaction would play out, other than to say the moment that you start to turn some of these commercial facilities into bases in Pakistan, of all places, is the moment that Indian discourse changes quite profoundly, and you really start to see some changes in the overall geopolitics of the region. And so I do think we see some caution on China's part, and this is what the strategic strong point, again, allows you to fit into that conceptual project is they're looking for access and support for sustaining economic and military activity abroad, however they can get it. It just so happens that China has extraordinary strengths in building and developing and operating transport infrastructure, and that that transport infrastructure is, is uniquely useful for military forces, as well as all manner of other forces to include humanitarian relief to communications, to include whatever whatever it is that China wants to project from these platforms. So a strategic strong point could just be a friendly port of call, and it could be all the way up to the Djibouti model of a full-up military base that's right next to a big commercial pier that supports all of their logistics needs. Any and all of these is potentially one of these strong points. And I think that that whole discourse in China is really about strategists in industry as well as on the military and supply and logistics side of the house, trying to think through what are the best ways that China is going to be able to advance its national interests overseas. And this network of ports just so happens to be one of the key 
kind of classes of asset that they're going to rely on. And that has become even more clear over the years since we've done the research and written that piece. We see more intensive, as I said, deeper uses as well as more extensive uses of these ports, using more of them in more regions of the world at a higher operational tempo. Well, Dr. Carden, thank you very much for your time today. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground and covering this ground has really illuminated how China draws on several elements of national power in pursuing a a comprehensive maritime strategy, not only projecting power with a potential anti-piracy task force or aircraft carriers, but also having a network of these strategic strong points that give it some plausible deniability and it can maximize utility and also shaping the law of the sea, as you discuss on your book. Uh, I just want to very deeply thank you for taking the time to help us discuss these issues today. Pleasure is all mine, Dylan, and uh, best of luck. Thank you. Alrighty, thank you. For all of our listeners out there, Small World Big Problems is a student-led production sponsored by the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at Johns Hopkins University's Paul H. Nitza School of Advanced International Studies, located in Washington, D.C. Small World Big Problems can be found on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to become part of the podcast, suggest a guest for the show, or just send us your feedback, please email us at SciStrategyPodcast at gmail.com. This episode was researched by Noah Martin, Elena Michalian, and me, and produced by Noah Martin and me. I'm Dylan Yachishin, and thank you everyone for taking the time out of your day to listen to this podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. See you all soon.